Well, friends, if we haven't met, my name is Adam, and I want to greet those of you uh, with us, not just in person, but also online, or whoever's going to experience this message later on in the week, electronically on our podcast or our website. Uh, It's my joy to be one of the pastors here, and I'm excited about opening God's Word together today. Earlier this month, there was a controversy in the sports and business world. Uh, The PGA Tour announced it was merging with its young rival, the Live Golf Tour. Now, I know not everybody's a sports person. I'm not even a golf person, so this is kind of a new analogy for me. Uh, I try to keep track of how many sports analogies I do so I don't exhaust you. I limit myself to like two Star Wars analogies every year, so I'm almost halfway through, so look out for another one of those. But even if you're not into golf, um, I think you'll be able to appreciate the situation and why people were potentially upset. The controversy in this merger of these golf tours is rooted in the ownership of the Live Tour. The Live Tour is run by the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Saudi Arabia. So this was met with criticism because of Saudi Arabia's record with human rights and potential knowledge or support with the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. So the PGA and the Live leadership have been called before the Senate, I think this week, to answer the question, what is the nature of your business with a foreign power? Have you ever found yourself aligning with someone who may or may not have your best interests in mind? To put it more crassly, have you ever had the thought, wait, those people? I mean, that was what the controversy was. You're merging your tour with the Saudis? In our scripture today, we're going to see a prophet called to go do business with historical enemies of his country. And I think we'll be able to sympathize with his reluctance. What I hope we'll discover together as we study God's word is that God's love is abundant, not reluctant. In this series, Jonah, we're going to be studying the Old Testament book of Jonah. I'm a fan of calling stuff what it is. Oh, what's your new sermon series called? Jonah. I can see see you're impressed. So we're going to be studying this Old Testament book of the Bible, and it's it's a story that's existed uh, for over 2,000 years, close to three. I think it's important, anytime we study the Bible, to have context of what's going on so we don't just lift one thing out and and try and apply it it where it might not belong. And I think especially in the Old Testament when we're going to encounter uh, some, some things that will be very foreign to us, it's important we spend a lot of time understanding the surroundings and the context. Uh, in 2 Kings, another Old Testament book, that's the first half of the Bible, in 2 Kings we read that Jonah was a contemporary of King Jeroboam of Israel who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoke through his servant, Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hepher. Now, we've already established, if you say some of these difficult words quickly and confidently, people will be like, oh, they know what they're talking about. So that's from me to you. So the reason we look at this uh, from 2 Kings is that this places Jonah uh, around King Jeroboam's reign, and that was roughly from 793 to 753 B.C., So that gives us a little bit of an idea of when some of this might have happened. The book of Jonah's authorship is unknown, as well as the date of its authorship is unknown. 
Now, Jonah's significant for two other reasons. He's one of the few prophets that's from the northern part, the northern kingdom of Judah that, was, uh, that shared the kingdom of Israel, which was the kingdom to the south. And Jonah is one of four prophets that Jesus names specifically in the New Testament much later. So Jonah's got a couple things going for him that's significant. So let's get into it. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Nineveh was part of the Assyrian Empire in modern-day Iraq. They've excavated a bunch of it. This would be an amazing place to go visit. Nineveh was notable because of its, its worship of the goddess Ishtar that drew people from all over the world. And Nineveh would grow in prominence the hundred years after Jonah under its king Sennacherib. And he created the palace without rival, which archaeologists have excavated. But I'm not going to show you that. I'm going to show you someone who did a Minecraft version of it, which I thought was hilarious. So I'm mostly just working this in because I thought the internet is incredible. I cannot, parents, this is for you. I don't know how to tell my son that I could not care less about anything Minecraft he wants to show me. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I try to support it. Well, I've been proved wrong because this is an amazing visual of the Minecraft palace without rival. So there you go. So this is, this is Nineveh. Jonah receives the call to go to Nineveh in God's name, but he flees. Now we'll find out later it's because Jonah doesn't want the Ninevites to hear about God's mercy. Jonah doesn't want to give the Ninevites the chance to repent. About 100 years before Jonah's time, Israel and Assyria, that's what Nineveh, the kingdom Nineveh is a part of, they were political, religious, and military rivals. So Jonah is less than enthused to speak with his people's historic enemy. He didn't want to talk to them about repentance and the mercy of God. He wants to see them get what they deserve. And then within one or two generations after Jonah, the Assyrians would carry off thousands of Judeans into exile. Now Jonah wouldn't have known that, but he doesn't want to help old enemies at all. So he flees to Tarshish. Biblical scholar Craig Keener notes that Tarshish is believed to have been in southern Spain, which is the furthest known geographical point in the 9th century BC. Meaning, Jonah didn't just flee across the street. He's trying to get literally as far away as he can. Not just a little bit, he's trying to get away a lot of bit. Verse 3 tells us he went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port of Tarshish. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So Joppa is a port city in Israel and it's 2,500 miles away from Tarshish. As far away as he could have gotten. I think that's significant. This must have been some fare that Jonah paid this cargo ship because the roundabout trip from Joppa to Tarshish, there and back, would have taken about three years. Three years. So if I were a narrator at this point, and I could speak over the Old Testament and say to Jonah, this is not going to go the way you think. You ever had one of those moments? This is not going to go the way you think. Verse 5 excuse me, verses four and five. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. 
So this is the first of several glimpses we're going to get at ancient religious practice. Monotheism, belief in one God, as the kids might say, was not a thing. It was novel to believe in one God in Jonah's time. Different tribes, different territories, different cities, different families, they all had different gods. So that's why we read, each prayed to their own God. The gods were viewed as fickle and cruel. They weren't so much worshipped as, as they tried to appease the gods. You seemed angry all the time, and you could never, they were unpredictable. And so the, through, the crew throws the cargo over the side of the ship. A year and a half's journey, gone. I mean, think how desperate you've got to be for that to be a good idea. They're just trying anything. Okay, the sea is going to overtake us. Let's try getting rid of all the stuff. Maybe that will make the gods less angry. One passenger wasn't to be seen anywhere, though. Verses 5 and 6, Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us that we will not perish. Now, I won't call this superstition, but if you're desperate enough to throw all the cargo of your cargo ship overboard, you're going to make sure every single person is participating in this thing. You're going to make sure every chance you get that everybody's pitching in to make this storm go away. Verses 7 through 10, then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. This terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. I, I always love these parenthetical statements that help us understand a little more about what's happening. This is another window into ancient religious practices. Uh, I don't know how you settle things in your family. Maybe it's nose goes or you flip a coin, pick a number one through ten. Yeah, when Sarah and I were first married and we had a dog, we would, when it was time to go out, rock, paper, scissors. Right? Who had to take him out because we were in the, uh, the apartment. Thousands of years ago, this is an example of, of a thing you do to decide something, casting lots. It's an example of divination. So this is like religious rock, paper, scissors. They're trying to understand what is it the gods are angry about, or in this case, whose fault is this? So they cast lots. It was probably some type of small physical token. I don't know if they had buttons in 800 BC, but I imagine a button or a nickel or something, a little rock that, that somehow every person was represented by, and they would put it into a jar. And then they would shake out the jar until one of them came out. Well, it was Jonah's that, that popped out. And unlike other gods, Jonah's God does claim superiority to all other gods. And the sailors are terrified because of the God Jonah claims. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, verse 11 and 12 tells us. So they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? And Jonah said, pick me up and throw me into the sea and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Now, to their credit, the sailors try another course of action first, even though Jonah instructed them to throw him overboard. Instead, verse 13 says, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, please 
Lord, do not let us die from taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. More examples of religious practices. I would not say that the sailors converted to Judaism. They were trying to appease this very powerful God and the one that was foreign to them. And I don't want to make light of this, but the prayer, Lord, don't hold us blameless for killing this guy and then killing him is sort of like, with all due respect, and then you say something very disrespectful, right? I, I, I found some twisted humor in that a little bit. And then in the most famous part of the story, which we'll continue to unpack next week, we read in verse 17, now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, in my estimation, most people who have heard this story before associate Jonah with the whale. I mean, the deep waters is our graphic. That's what you think of when you think of Jonah, or as the Bible calls it, a huge fish. Some people argue about, is it a whale or a fish? And I would call this chronological snobbery, meaning trying to go backwards in time and importing our understanding to 800 BC. Modern taxonomy, where we categorize animals, wasn't invented until the 18th century. I don't know if you've ever thought of this, like if you watch shows that were made like before the year 2000, most of the plot points could be done away with with cell phones. You ever ever think about that? Like Seinfeld would not be a thing if they would have had cell phones. But we can't transport back to 1993 and give Jerry Seinfeld an iPhone. It just doesn't work. Similarly, we can't retroactively go back to 800 BC and say, well, a whale is a mammal. So like it just doesn't, it's not the right train of thinking. Especially in the 17 and 1800s, like just a few hundred years ago, verse 17 of chapter 1 was very controversial because people tried to pin that and it made, it made the debate, uh, verse 17 was central in the debate of whether Jonah is a historical book or not. Meaning do these events actually take place? Now, different people have different views on whether that's important. I do think it's significant that in the book of Matthew, Jesus himself said, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He was referring to the time in between his death and his resurrection. Now, whether or not we think it was a mammal or a fish, to me the most important thing is that God provided the means for Jonah to be saved and God provided another chance for Jonah to be obedient. So, if you've never read a whole chapter of the Bible before, guess what? You did today. We read the whole thing. Jonah chapter 1. The story of Jonah has fascinated people for thousands of years. Uh, I hope we also gained an understanding of some things that are pretty foreign to us. When I read chapter 1, I find myself confronted with three questions. We begin in verse 1 with, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And I often feel a disconnect between my experience of trying to understand or hear from God and people in the Bibles hearing from God. And so the first question in my mind is, how do we know what God is calling us to? Yeah, I think a lot of Christians, I I know myself, have wished I could just get some like 
verbal instructions. You're a senior in high school and you just want God to say, go to the University of Oklahoma and study physics. Now, God would never tell me that. And I will, I will speak to you in the third semester. Like, wouldn't that be great? And so I think sometimes we read this, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And it's like, well, I'd be a little more obedient if I could get some of that action too. I also think it's important for us to remember that we have access to a lot that Jonah didn't. We have the scriptures of which this book became a part. And we believe God speaks to us through the scriptures. We have the wisdom of the church for 2,000 years. We have access to the Holy Spirit in a way that Jesus promised would aid us after his ascension, his departure. You know, we talked in, a, in our last series called Wind and Wonder about the Holy Spirit and that the Spirit speaks to us through a variety of things, through materials like the Bible, through materials like songs, through, uh, through people, through practices, John Wesley called these the means of grace, like scripture, like prayer, like worship. And that God can even speak to us in places where we might feel God's presence in a special way. And so we have a lot more resources than Jonah would have, in my view, to hear from God. And so how do we know what God is calling us to? My experience has been, I'm not saying it can't be, my experience has been it probably won't be a simple audible voice as much as I would love that. So if you want to hear more about that, you can find our Holy Spirit sermon series on our website. Now, once we do get some guidance from God, once we do feel, okay, I've got this pull, I've got this tug, I've got this nudge, I've got this call, how do we avoid God's call? Jonah tried to get physically as far away as he could. Maybe we've tried that. I'm going to get out from under mom and dad or mom or dad or whoever's roof. I'm going to show Grandma Ma that I can live on my own. Because Grandma Ma was always talking about God. So some of us may have tried to do a physical detour like Jonah. But how else do we distance ourselves from God? As if we could run in the first place. That's one of the things Jonah confronts us with. So maybe instead of distancing ourselves physically, we might use other means to distance ourselves from God. Now we don't have time for me to name enough of these, but I learned from a counselor this concept called STURBS, short-term energy relieving behaviors, things we do that feel good in the short term, but that are not good for us in the long term. Uh, this could be compulsive shopping, eBaying, binge watching, overeating, watching Chiefs playoffs highlights in June, gambling, scrolling and trolling on social media. Now, some of us are upset because I just described your weekend. <laughs> Whoa, this, what else are we doing? How is it that we try to run from God? Among those could be short-term energy-relieving behaviors. Sturbs. Maybe like the sailors, we don't really worship God, but we want to appease God. Maybe by not cussing too much, coming to church every once in a while, just enough to make sure that sea doesn't get too nasty. 
even if we stay right like we are physically, how do we flee from God with our behavior? The third question Jonah confronts us with is who do we try to avoid that God calls us to love? Jonah was a reluctant prophet. He didn't want to go to Nineveh because he didn't want it to work. He wanted to see him get what he thought they deserved. Operative word is they. Jonah didn't think they deserved it. You ever notice, like I do, that God's mercy always applies to me, but rarely to they? I always love God's mercy for me. Not so much for they. They don't deserve it. I deserve it. They don't deserve it. What kind of stories do we tell ourselves to justify turning some folks into they? Why are we reluctant to show God's love as if it's limited or rationed? It's abundant. We don't only have so many points to distribute and then it's gone. So we don't got to worry about wasting it when we can't run out of it. So the issue isn't whether or not there's enough of God's love for everyone, but the issue is whether we want to see everyone as worthy of it or not. Did I get, is there like a new light shining here? I, I thought I was just getting extra inspired. I'm like, come on, come on. <laughs> you guys got to warn me. It's like, man, they're really, yeah, okay. Friends, what does it say about the character of God that God sends Jonah to Nineveh? There's a concept in business psychology called the ladder of inference. This comes from Chris Argyris. I learned about this concept in a pastoral cohort I'm a part of where we commit to meeting together and learning together. Uh, and there's a bunch of words up here. The concept is pretty simple. We have experiences and, and, and we draw from those experiences to interpret them and that helps us make assumptions. Those assumptions make us draw conclusions to form beliefs and those beliefs translate into actions. At the top of the ladder of inference is the story we're telling ourselves. I'll give you a couple examples. When I was in my 20s especially, anytime uh, my, my pastor, uh, my supervisor, my mentor would say, hey Adam, can we meet later? Up the ladder of inference I would go, what's wrong? What did I do? Right? Now why would I infer that? So I, he actually was so nice, he actually conditioned himself to say, Adam, I need to meet later. Nothing is wrong. And if he didn't say that, then I would know. So that was good too. Uh, but why do we tell ourselves that, why do we prepare for the worst when it's maybe not a big deal? Um, I've had folk, this happens when people say, hey, I'd like to meet with you this week. Here. I have some version of this meeting in my mind. I go up the ladder of inference. And do you think I imagine that meeting as a pleasant one or not? Why do I do that? Am I the only one? All right. And, and so those are kind of the nice pastory versions I'm comfortable sharing with you. But here's the nastiest version of the ladder of inference. It's the opposite of the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. At the top of the ladder of inference is the conclusion they aren't worthy of God's love. That's the worst version. And that by their appearance, by their reputation, operative word, they, 
by whatever criteria we have decided they fit into, we go up the ladder of inference and think, that's a pass from me. What's the meme say? That's a no from me, dog. And we treat them like they're from Nineveh. That's the worst version of what's at the top of the ladder of inference. It's a story we tell ourselves that makes us excuse other people, excuse us from showing other people God's love because they don't deserve it. That's the hard truth of Jonah. And we may not have to go to Tarshish to experience that wherever we go. So friends, may we remember that we serve a God who sends prophets to Nineveh. That we serve a God who will reroute us by any means necessary. Friends, may we live the truth that God's love is abundant, it's not reluctant. Who will join me in staying off the ladder of inference? And everybody said, amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today, for this appointment with you. Thank you for your word, which is still accessible to us and still speaks to us 2,800 years later. God, cure us of our own reluctance to communicate your love to people that we'd rather just not. Help us not to be glad recipients of your love, but reluctant givers of your love. Help us to not categorize ourselves as worthy and put up walls and barriers for people we don't find so worthy. God, if we're encountering a storm in life, if that storm brings us closer to you, back on the path you would set us on, then that storm is good news. So God, help us not do this the hard way. Help us to perceive your call, what you've called us to and who you've called us to love. Help us live that out this week. Help us remember that we don't serve a God who is stingy and reluctant with love and mercy, but who is abundant. That we serve Jesus who says, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Thank you for the example of the reluctant prophet Jonah. May we learn from it and live differently because of it. It's in your son's name we pray.